Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. <laughs> I know, I know. We're like at the, well, where's the second part? Which is, there's only two parts. Yeah. You know, and the second part, I feel like it also, it goes very well with the first part, I think, because you could just describe their their musical and friendship and everything and, and everything that they've gone through since the beginning as a nightmare romance. <laughs> So we're at, we're at the romance part of the nightmare part. It's both. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And as she said, we are on to suicide part two of two. So when we last left suicide, they had just been banned from CBGBs, which was the epicenter of the punk movement at the time. But it, just because the fucking Marty didn't want to drink. <laughs> just because he didn't want to drink and just wanted to play pool for a night. But it's such bullshit because uh, Alan said, like, uh, when he told the manager, he's like, I'll buy two drinks <laughs> and I'll drink them both, which I think I've done before. Yeah. Or when I asked for a double and they said, we don't do doubles. So I said, well, can I have two drinks then? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes in New York City, you have to do some sort of, like, weird logic game when it comes to alcohol. <laughs> and sometimes they're just dickheads. <laughs> well, yeah, so suicide, I mean, they're they're banned from where all the action is, at least as far as the downtown scene goes. So they were trying to book gigs at CBGB's slightly more uptown counterpart, Maxis, Kansas City. Now, Maxis, Kansas City has gotten a little overshadowed by CBGBs over the years, partly because the bigger bands like the Ramones, Blondie, and Television, they're a lot more attached to CBs. And it's also partly because the CBGBs logo looked great on a fucking t-shirt. Oh, it did. I mean, didn't everyone wear it in, like, the 90s? It was the 90s and the 2000s. I remember being in college and uh, seeing, like, CBGB's t-shirts and thinking, like, oh, man, now I got something to talk to that girl about. And then, <laughs> <laughs> then I'd go over and be like, so, you into the Ramones? And then she'd, more more often than not, say, like, it's just a t-shirt. Aww. And then I'm like... I'm going to go write a column in the local paper about how this is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? To be fair, like I once bought a really cool Slash shirt and Mm -hmm. wore it for years. And then years later, I found out that that was actually (laughs) (laughs) T-Rex. You found out that was Mark Ballin. And I had no idea who T-Rex was until many years after that. I don't know, like confusing Slash for Mark Bolin is not the worst sin when it comes to music. Uh, Goddamn Urban Outfitters. (laughs) 
But Max is Kansas City, so it it was like a nice, more like glitzier kind of uh, venue. You yeah. know, it was up like near like Union Square area, mm-hmm. and it was you know you, you won't see any like you know drug dealers, junkies just hanging outside. You know, Hell's Angels won't be parking right there, <laughs> and and it was like also it was a big scene in the '60s for like Andy Warhol and his whole crew. Mm-hmm. So like it, it was already like this is where remember this is where uh, Iggy Pop met David Bowie in '71. Yeah, a lot of cool shit happened there. I mean, it was where. Uh, uh, I know Aerosmith played their very first New York City gig uh, at Max's Kansas City. Uh, a ton of people got their start there. I mean, it was like, it was the glam scene in New York City in the early 70s. It was so exclusive, like you had to be screened. So you wait in line to see if you were cool enough to go in or not. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, Jim Carrey in that fantastic classic mu- movie, uh, The Mask. <laughs> <laughs> that modern classic. So Max's Kansas City, like, so the reason why they were making so much money is not just because of all these celebrities, like John Lennon would hang out there and stuff, but it's also because they had a restaurant in the first floor, and mm. then the venue was upstairs. So there was like, uh, the restaurant was always doing great, and then upstairs is when all the crazy shit would happen. Yeah. Now, Max's Kansas City was no less important than CBGB's, and was in fact the location of the recordings of fantastic live albums by, of course, the Velvet Underground. Everyone knows knows Velvet Underground live at Max's Kansas City. I bought that one like in 2002. <laughs> it's great. But one of the lesser known live recordings at Max's Kansas City was by the Heartbreakers. <laughs> That whole album is so fucking good. I mean, the problem with a lot of those live albums uh, back then is just the sound just isn't great. But the great thing about that Heartbreakers album is that it act- it feels like you're there. Yeah, it does. Like, it really captures that feeling of like, seeing an amazing band in their prime in a small venue. Uh, so, yeah, Heartbreakers live at Max's Kansas City. Absolutely worth checking out. Well, the coolest thing about Max's Kansas City was that it was willing to take a chance on suicide. And because Max's took that chance, the venue became the de facto home for the band throughout the mid-70s. As far as how they got their foot in the door went, Marty sent a demo tape over to the Booker of Max's in 1975. But when he didn't hear anything back, Marty went over to the venue to pick up the tape because they couldn't afford to lose a single one. It's expensive. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even have money to, like, eat or anything. So, like, Marty went there. He was talking to the booking manager, or Sam Hood, and he was just like, all right, can I get my tape back? And Sam's like, all right, fine. He goes around. He's looking everywhere. He's going through his cabinets. He, he picks, you know, he makes a few phone calls <laughs> while he's doing it. So Marty's sitting there for, like, what, like an hour? Mm-hmm. And he just starts nodding off. <laughs> he just takes a nap. 
He said he came from walking from the Bronx. Jesus Christ. He was tired. The from the Bronx for those of you who've never been to New York City, from the Bronx to uh where Max's Kansas City was, right around Union Square, that's what? Six miles? Seven? Some, almost. Like, yeah. It is a, it is the almost the entire it's most of Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> And so he, Marty's like kind of nodding off a little bit and Sam like freaks out. He's just like, he, maybe he thought he was like, you know, on drugs or something. <laughs> and so Sam eventually, he couldn't find a tape. So he's like, you know what? I'll, I'll give you guys Thursday. All right. Can you just please leave? Just don't die in my fucking club. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam even walked him to the elevator because he was like kind of worried about Marty. And when Marty like realized what was happening and that he was, they were getting the gig, he kind of like kept the pretense like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I am very tired. <laughs> and then he walked outside where Alan's outside smoking a cigarette. He was like, Alan, I got us a gig. <laughs> Don't ask how. Well, during that show, Alan brought the motorcycle chains and just fucking swung them from the stage. I mean, just whacked the tables in the front row. But he never hit anyone. I mean, he was actually very careful when he whacked those fucking chains. And this led a lot of people to compare uh, Alan Vega to Iggy Pop. But Vega's performance was a lot more confrontational. And there were definitely differences between Iggy Pop's performance and Alan Vega's performance. I mean, it could be argued that Iggy's performance was rooted in more of a, like, nihilistic lust. But Vega was coming from a place of love. At least that's what I think. Like, it's like, uh, what is it? Tenderness wrapped in motorcycle chains. Just ripping someone's comic book is love. <laughs> I mean, yes, you should not be reading. But still, that's what Alan Vega would do. Like, he would, like, spill people's drinks and everything. Like, he wanted to get in their faces. Yeah, of course. Like, he wanted to get in their face. I mean, he wanted to have a, a confrontation. Like, not necessarily a fight, but definitely, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the words in your face. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did use those words. <laughs> well, just for an example of like the tenderness of suicide, uh, check out this track from the first album. It's called Cherie. So pretty. Yeah, this is when Marty and Alan actually called it, like, this was our actual real song. It, <laughs> it had a beginning, middle, and end. 
<laughs> verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Yeah, yeah and, good and, for it, and it's a and it, it's a terribly sweet song. I mean, that's the song that got you into suicide, right? Yes, that was the one. Actually, that was the only song I liked for a while. Yeah, <laughs> and to, I mean, it just yeah. I guess it, it suicide takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of time, and then when you get to the second album, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about the second album later and the differences in opinion that we have. Ooh. So after the show at Max's, Suicide decided to switch up their sound, completely abandoning the drum kit that Rev had been lugging around the city for the last five years to replace it with an old school drum machine. Now back then, drum machines were not just samples of the actual noises drums make like they are today. I just pulled my dog up into my lap. <laughs> Do you have something to say, Georgie? Instead, the sounds were completely synthesized. The snare drum sound would be produced by a burst of white noise, just while the bass drum thump would be created using a digital sine wave, like an oscillator. There were groups using these machines in the early 70s, the most notable example of which was Sly and the Family Stone, who used a drum machine in their number one hit, Family Affair. Somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the both of them. You see it's in the blood. Both kids are good to mom. Blood's thicker than the mud. It's a family affair. Now, you probably heard that song before and never even thought about how the drum sounded because, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, it's a fuck, it's a band of life. I mean, it's an affirmation. I mean, it's, a, it's life, it's emotion, you know, all those other things that make you feel good. That's what you feel when you listen to Sly and the Family Stone. You don't really think about, like, oh, those drums sound weird. You're right. Every time I go on a cruise, I do feel good <laughs> when I hear that song. But in the wrong hands, or in this case, the right hands, an old-school drum machine sounds mechanical and cold. Fittingly, though, the first drum machine that Suicide used had a story steeped in an almost too-good-to-be-true poetic tragedy. I know, because Marty had seen these like uh, drum machines at weddings and bar mitzvahs and like parties and stuff where uh, people would just like uh, hire like a two-man band or a one-man band, and they would just have the you know drum machine accompanying it. Mm -hmm. And since like Mary already, his wife, wasn't helping him out in rehearsing as a drummer uh, because you know they had to go raise four kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she so he like decided like I can't replace marry with like a person like he's like just i just can't do it yeah so what he did is that he found an ad for a used uh ry rhythm prince a rhythm prince i'm acting like i know all about drum machines <laughs> 
And uh, so he found an ad. So he went to go buy it. Uh, he went to Queens to uh, buy it from this couple who were selling it because uh, their daughter owned it. Mm-hmm. And that's what she used uh, to accompany like her poetry. But sadly, like this, uh, their daughter, who was like only 19 years old, like committed suicide earlier. Yeah. So it, it was like one of those sad things when Marty goes all the way up to Queens. He talks to like the loveliest couple in the world. <laughs> and here's this story. And he's just like, there's something beautiful and really sad and bittersweet about this. Here's your money. And then just walks away with it. But like, and it was just like the beginning of like him thinking like, I could just put all this stuff together. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost too good to be true. Like It's like the, the, the band Suicide bought the drum machine that came to help define their sound. They bought it from a grieving family whose daughter had committed suicide. You know, this drum machine, this was not an Aphex Twin beast, like fucking spitting out 11-4 rhythms. Like, this was very, very simple. I mean, it was used for weddings and bar mitzvahs. That's I, what it was used. That's what it was marketed as. That's what it was sold for. Like that, and that's what people used it for until suicide used it. Well, yeah, because Alan said like Marty just showed up with this box and wires and stuff, and he's like, <laughs> "This is what we're gonna use." And for an example of like the most complicated thing they could do with it, uh, this is "Girl" again from Suicide's debut. <laughs> they were like breaking ground in so many ways with the drum machine and also like not having a guitar and it and also the name suicide yeah because <laughs> <laughs> the drum machine like they would use it like with a guitar amp with two inputs yeah you know marty would run the drum machine and keyboard through one and alan ran the microphone in a two track uh in a two track tape recorder through the other one and they recorded their rehearsals that way yeah and like after the introduction of the drum machine in 1975 they got down to the business of like recording proper demos like actually trying to get some of their songs down on tape and some of the tracks from this session were released in 1999 with a reissue of their second album now these demos uh and actually they're more called as you said rehearsals like that's actually how they were released with the reissue of the second album is like you know and it was the second the second album from suicide and first rehearsal tapes you know these are without a doubt rough they're real rough. <laughs> <laughs> and you might absolutely fucking hate what you're about to hear. I mean, they're they're rough, they're weird, but these demos, they're still a fascinating look into a band trying to figure out a sound that was almost entirely new.
I love romantic funeral march songs. (laughs) (laughs) That's a specific thing to love. (laughs) It is indeed. So this is like, what, 1975 now? 75, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they're finally, you know, uh, working things out. They also actually, they also recorded a song. um, Was it the the song Dreams that later uh, evolved into Dream Baby Dream? So Mm -hmm. this is when they're finally figuring everything out. They're also playing a lot of gigs. I mean... When I say a lot of gigs, I mean over a period of years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes they'd get stuff and sometimes they wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, but like uh, when they first got booked at uh, Mother's, which is a venue that was open like just for a little while. Just for a little bit. But it was, I think, if I remember correctly, like Mother's was pretty important to the gay scene, right? Like Mother's was a gay bar? Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Right across the street from the Chelsea Hotel, which is a very, very famous, we know, rock and roll punk place of course so peter crowley right he was booking the venue uh, just actually just because he wanted his uh, friend wayne county uh to just do shows Mm -hmm. uh, because she couldn't do any at cbgb's (laughs) (laughs) well wayne county uh was one of the uh huge figures at max's kansas city she yes definitely she definitely was uh also a complicated person very complicated (laughs) (laughs) so very 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 complicated and yeah it's wayne county like you kind of either love or hate uh, Wayne County. I mean, it's fun music. Cream in My Jeans is a fine song. <laughs> <laughs> but she had a good friend in Peter Crowley who was booking uh, Mothers. Uh, he came up with the idea of having Suicide Headline because he already saw a disastrous show at CPGB's when, <laughs> when they were opening. He's like, no, you guys are not an opening act. I think I, we need to get you guys like some sort of following. Uh, as Wayne County called it, uh, she, she said that Suicide was more like room emptiers. And yeah. they would just put them on last. <laughs> but you know what? They were headlining. Yeah. And so they finally got a Thursday night residency, right? So they did it every Thursday for like four weeks or so. Uh, and it and it worked. Peter like, actually came up with a great idea because at first, the first show was like 12 people were there. And then mm-hmm. the, the next week, 25 people showed up. And then the next week after that, there were 40 people. So he knew like how to like get a band to get some buzz going on about them like you see this shit and then you go to your friends you're like oh my god you gotta you gotta go back yeah it's like you have to see this shit like how is it oh it was awful but man you gotta see it (laughs) yes exactly i mean mothers even though it wasn't open for very long there like a lot of shit happened in that time that was actually when debbie harry uh asked uh marty he was like hey do you want to be a keyboardist in my band we're just doing this thing uh stilettos i think we're gonna be called blondie soon yeah and marty was like kind attempted (laughs) but he's like nah i believe in suicide yeah you know we'll kind of get into this a little bit later but like this this scene that we know of as like the new york city punk scene it is fantastically fast like it is over and done with in a matter of two or three years like yeah like rafifi's don hills yeah yeah anyone our age (laughs) whoever went out clubbing in new york city yeah where 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 my 2000s kids at (laughs) they also played at club 82 is because they had to play these other clubs because at this time uh max's kansas closed for a little while and then reopened later but Mm -hmm. club 20 uh but club 82 that was a drag place right and it was owned by uh Anna Genovese. Anna Genovese. Ew. From the Genovese mob crime family. Oh, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just a typical kind of lesbian hangout place. Uh-huh. It was ran by like these two uh, lesbians, uh, Tommy and Butch, <laughs> which is great lesbian names. Bit on the nose. Yes. <laughs> and the funny thing is like when they would, pl- Suicide would play, Tommy would just yell at Marty and Alan whenever they played there. She just, 
Tommy just was just not happy with them. <laughs> but still had to like put them on. And yeah. it even at it got to the point where Marty said like, you know, years later like she finally like started talking to me. <laughs> and she was nice cuz she realized like they're not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with these fucking assholes for forever. And also they're very nice guys. Yes, they that, are. And that really that was part of uh, why suicide kept getting booked uh, was because they were super nice dudes because they were doing they were doing this thing like and I think it partly they knew uh, partly they were just good dudes partly that's just you know that that was just their personality but I think they also knew like if we're gonna do this shit if we're gonna be this confrontational band like we're going to have to be nice to people. We're going to have to like get to know the venue owners. We're going to have to like, we're going to have to have some passes. Well, they were also just genuinely nice guys. Yeah. And they were also such New York guys. And a lot of these bookers and owners were also like New York guys. And yeah. I think that's kind of how they ingratiated themselves. Yeah. Also being like, yeah, you know, we, our family they, of immigrants came to New York back in whenever. And uh, like, they, they, they yeah, you know, I, was like, I just bought the Midden Hearst <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I moved up here like uh, about uh, five years ago, something like that. Like, I, you know, I don't have been <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you said, sir, but you're on. How's your Tarlet doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Max's Kansas finally reopens, right? Yeah. And it's uh, they're with new owners, uh, Tommy Dean and his wife Laura, and they open this. And uh, guess who was brought on to book the venue? Peter Crowley. Ah. Yeah, he was brought on to book the acts because the f- restaurant was failing, and so they needed to make money, especially during the week, like a Sunday through Thursday thing. So Peter would book Wayne County, of course, mm-hmm. on Sundays, and then he, he and then he was able to book whoever he wanted, right? And he loved suicide. Yeah. He thought they were great, even though they were a disaster. <laughs> like one of the Max's uh, shows that Suicide did uh, was like the Easter Festival, mm-hmm. and that was like. Big. That was like five days a week for two weeks. Uh, you know, bands like Television, uh, Patti Smith played, uh, the R- Ramones, Heartbreakers, Blondie. I mean, like they were finally like, oh wow, we're we're actually part of the scene now. Yeah, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> but and, a begrudging part of the scene. And that was the show where Marion Lena uh, actually saw them play, and she's going to be very important later because she's later. She, I mean. First of all, uh, drummer for the Cramps for, yeah. the, for a time, mm-hmm. and then later working for Red Star. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite stories about like the Max's shows was that like okay. First of all, it's a regular suicide show where Alan's wearing his, you know, studded black jacket, you know, his red headband and like Marty with the giant sunglasses. Yeah. People said like they didn't look cool, <laughs> but they kind of were, you know. Yeah. We haven't even really gotten into like Marty, uh, Martin Rev's gigantic trademark sunglasses that he still wears to this day giant. for shows. Gigantic. Like these huge pointed sunglasses that almost go like they go above his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even know. Like, I think. He probably he bought him like down one of those places, a St. Mark's place, I think. He probably found them. Yeah. <laughs> but oh. but they're very like futuristic. Like they're, they're very like su- like they suicide looked. They had that post apocalyptic aesthetic before it became a thing in like movies in the eighties. Before like a boy and his dog and hardware and Mad Max and all that shit. Like that's like suicide. That's just what they looked like. <laughs> <laughs> We're was, sorry we look like this. 
Anyway, here's our first song. <laughs> they would play so loud, like so loud, like the bouncers, like the bartenders, they would have to cover their ears, even though they would wear earplugs too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Didi Ramon actually saw them play. And this was a this was a weird show where um he went to go see them first and he's like, Oh, that's pretty good. And then he came back the next week with Joey Ramon and it was just like four other people. Mm-hmm. And one of them was like this blonde girl in like Essen. S&M gear mm-hmm. and she was just like I don't know what she was on but she went up all the way to the speakers and mind you this is so loud that the bouncer is complaining <laughs> how loud it is she stood right there right in front and she was just started banging her head really hard Jesus yeah like on the wall or against the, spe- the speakers oh god and her head was like soon covered in blood uh, And but she just kept doing it mm. it got to the point where even Alan Vega tried to stop her <laughs> I cool it. Cool it. Are you okay? <laughs> and then eventually she like kind of landed on the floor and just laid there and like kind of squirming around. I mean, t- t- you know, she was I mean, she probably took something. Yeah, 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 fantastically fucked up on something. <laughs> Covered in blood. <laughs> so Alan just decides like I'm going to calm her down. I'm just going to sing to her. Mm-hmm. So he's singing to her and when it finally felt like she was calming down, she got up and jumped straight into the wall. <laughs> Like head first? Like like a cartoon character with one of those painted tunnels? <laughs> <laughs> and th- these shows, like, you know, like Alan would get into her faces. He would make them dance. The audience hated this. <laughs> <laughs> but the people who would stay and watch them, a lot of them were, like, very well-known musicians. Like, you yeah. know, the Ramones saw them. Uh, Mink DeVille loved them. Uh, Richard Hell. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were and are a musician's band. Like that, that was what musician, that's what suicide's always been. So one of the cool things about Max's Kansas City is that they fucking filled their jukebox with demos and recordings made by bands who played there on the regular. Although, you know, again, suicide sounded like nobody else. Like, for example, like there was a compilation put out in 1976 called Max's Kansas City 1976 that showcased all of the bands that were uh, playing in Max's Kansas City at the time, like Wayne County, The Fast, all that. Suicide was the last track on that compilation. They're headlining again. <laughs> yeah, like, they they put them on, it's the last track of side B of that record where it's like, okay, you can, if you don't like it, you just turn it right off, but this way we're guaranteed they're going to listen to it at least until suicide. <laughs> and for a comparison, like what some of the other bands who, who played there sounded like, like this is a track from a band called uh, John Collins Band. Uh, it's uh, called The Man and Me. For me, it sounds like a combination of like Roxy Music and Jethro Tull. It's pretty fucking cool. You know what this sounds like? Secret 
aging man. <laughs> They've taken away your name, given you a number. That's to- I'm not a singer. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, for me, it's it's like fucking Brian Ferry fronting the Shocking Blue. You know that I'm your Venus. I'm your fire. Your oh, desire. desire. Also not a singer. <laughs> <laughs> Even though a lot of the Max's Kansas City, like, home base bands, even though they didn't really go that far outside of New York City, one of the bands who ended up playing there with Suicide a fuck ton was a band who we'll be covering in a future series, The Cramps. Peter Crowley actually gave them their start at Max's. Yeah. The Cramps? Yeah. No yeah. shit. Well, it's because um, because they auditioned for CBGBs and Hilly Crystal was like, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter was there because he liked to go to the auditions to see if he wanted to book them for Max's. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then like, you know, Hilly like told the Cramps like, no, nah, sorry, man, you're, you're just not going to make it here at CBGBs. They went backstage. They were crying, oh. like really crying. So Peter goes up to them, just such a nice, good dude. He's like, hey, you can play at Max's. I'll give you a date. Um, stop crying. Yeah. <laughs> and also bring a tuning machine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, man, that's really surprising because the Cramps are like one of the most technically talented member, like technically talented bands out of that whole fucking scene. Uh, well, not at first. Yeah. <laughs> apparently. And, you know, speaking of the Cramps, like remember the year and place here. This is 1976 New York City. Like Suicide, they've been playing gigs around town for the entirety of the decade by this point, and they hadn't gotten fucking anywhere. And this is while, like, you know, the Ramones and Blondie, they are negotiating major label deals, and Suicide is still just playing Sunday night at Max's. Now, the person who took Suicide to the next level was a guy who'd already booked him years before at the Mercer Art Center, before it collapsed. His name was Marty Thau, and he'd really only thought of Suicide as a performance art act until he heard a demo of one of Suicide's best tracks, Rocket USA. Rocket, Rocket USA Let's go. 
You know, that song got really popular on the jukebox. One time when Marty and Alan were getting ready to play, uh, the song came on, like someone put it on in the jukebox, and mm. the bartender started kicking it, being like, get this song out of here. <laughs> Marty and Alan are setting up, oh, this is going to be awkward. <laughs> oh, man, I remember the first time I heard that song. Like, I don't even, that's the funny thing. I don't remember where I heard suicide first. I don't remember how I heard suicide. I just remember the CD, like living in Bushwick, and the CD just appeared out of somewhere. I don't know. I don't remember where I bought it. Like, I vaguely remember seeing a blog post. Someone posted, like, you got to hear this band, Suicide, listening to one track, and then immediately going out and buying the album. Because this is, like, you know, mid 2000s. So. Still had to do that. Like, <laughs> like, still had to go out and buy. You had to go, actually put on your shoes? Yeah, I had to put on my shoes, go out and buy the album. Uh, and I, listening to, like, Rocket USA for the first time, because I, you know, brought my CD player with me out there and, like, putting it in the CD player and, like, walking through Bushwick. Just, I remember that song. I remember the day I heard that song. I remember the moment I heard that song and just my mind being fucking blown. Like, ne- I'd never heard anything like that before and, fuck, still hadn't heard anything like that since. And it still sounds relevant, you know? Like, when he's singing about Doomsday, Doomsday, I'm like... That reminds me of yesterday. <laughs> and tomorrow. And tomorrow. Yeah, it's like it's 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 still it's still extremely relevant. That's why I love Suicide so much because it could have been made last week. So based off of the demo, Marty Thau figured Suicide had the chops to record and release an album. So Thau decided to be their manager. Now, unlike most people in New York, Marty Thau believed in suicide. And even his friends who liked suicide said he was kind of annoying to hang out with sometimes because he talked about suicide so goddamn much. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I certainly don't. You certainly don't. You certainly haven't been hearing me talk about suicide from, I don't know, the first week we started dating. Yeah. <laughs> it was like at that point, I'm like, I either have to really listen to them and become a fan, like an honest fan, or just walk away from this relationship. (laughs) Me and Suicide's a package deal. (laughs) (laughs) The first label that Marty tried with Suicide was Mercury, because Mercury had already taken a chance on the New York Dolls a few years before. Unfortunately, though, Mercury passed on Suicide after listening to them for literally five minutes. (laughs) I think they had like a five-minute rule, where it's like, we're going to give any band five minute chance and then the moment five minutes was up there just went nah no nah we're not nah uh-uh we're not gonna no we're not gonna do this <laughs> soon after though a disco label named prelude records offered thou a chance to start a label putting out albums by bands who made up the new york downtown scene and thus red star records was born that's right, because Marty Thal, um, he started, first he started Instant Records with uh, Richard Gotherher. <laughs> you know, I come from a Spanish background, uh-huh, yeah. so these German words are very hard. I, I know, I know. It, it is, 
quite fun to go to Germanic countries with you. <laughs> <laughs> we know. So he started that, and then he, uh, you know, that's when they signed uh, Richard Hell. Uh, and that was actually the time when Marty was asked, asked to join Richard Hell's band. The Voidoids? The Voldoids. <laughs> damn it, it's a fucking language. <laughs> I don't think Voidoids is a, Voldoids. a word in any language. No, I know. <laughs> so once again, someone approaches Marty. He's like, hey, do you want to come join my band? And Marty's like, nope. Still believe in suicide. Yeah. Martin Rev, you mean, not Marty Thau. Marty Rev. Yeah. Yes. That's what, oh, yes. I know. Oh, yeah. We got to use last names now. Yeah. Because right, remember, yeah, we're in fucking New York in the 1970s, so every fourth person is named Marty. Marty and Mikey <laughs> and, and Paulie. So, uh, so what happened with Instant Records is that like uh, things broke down between Marty and Marty Thau and Richard because they were fighting over percentages. So that's when Marty Thau like, sold his interest. He had this money and started Red Star. And that's actually right at the moment when they like bumped into uh, suicide. Yeah, at, at Max's. Ah, it's serendipitous. Yeah. So by May of 1977, Martin Rev and Alan Vega had signed a one-year contract with Marty Thau, and Suicide received a $5,000 advance on a record six years after they first started playing real music venues in New York City. And other doors were starting to open back up for Suicide. In February of 1977, CBGBs ended their stupid fucking ban on Suicide <laughs> and welcomed them back into the fold to open for the Ramones. song always makes me think mm. of getting drunk with my cousin and just say Dr. Chainsaw Massacre. It's special for all of us. <laughs> so yeah, Suicide opens for the Ramones at CBGB's, right? It's a big show. It's crowded. Uh, the Ramones were actually coming from playing at the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, and, and then they were going to head over to CBGB's. So 1977, this is around the time I like leave home, right? Like I, this is after the first record's already been released. Yes. Second record's about to come out. That's right. Yeah. They were huge already. Yeah. And Suicide, they did their opening set to uh, Loud Booze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the audience hated them. And when they finally finished their set and went back to the dressing room, Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB's, runs back in like all red faces. like, you guys didn't play long enough. <laughs> and it's like, what are you talking about? It was like the Ramones are late. Apparently, they were stuck in traffic, but also some sources say that they got lost in the parking lot. <laughs> you remember where we parked? The parking lot. It did, where the hell's the parking? I do not want to. Do you know where we put the car? No, I don't remember where we put the car. 
Crystal was like, you got to go on again and now. <laughs> so, so Marty and Alan just look at each other and they just went back out there and they played until the Ramones showed up <laughs> and they described the booing at a, like a new decibel level. <laughs> so Alan just having fun with it would just keep yelling like, I can't hear you. <laughs> I mean, CBGB's was fucking small. Like, did, yeah. you, did you ever get to go to CBGB's? I did. I did. I went on the night, one of the last, supposedly last nights, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where at midnight we're all chanting, "We're still here, yeah. we're still here," and then like a year later, it was closed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're going, we're going home. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, yeah, a year later is a art gallery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but hey, you know they put up that uh, street sign right next to the alley. Joey Ramone place. That's nice. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> so in May of 1977, Suicide traveled upstate to the small town of Blavelt and began work on their first album at Ultima Studios, which was the same place that the Ramones had recorded some of their first tracks the year before. And the person who produced that album was Craig Leon. Yeah, he also he also was uh, had a hand in producing uh, the Ramones' first album mm-hmm. and uh, and Blondie. So like he was still like a new guy. He I mean he was start getting his start in this, and he was excited to do this with Suicide because he he thought they were great. Yeah, they had champions, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like they had champ, and you know, and I think that like speaks towards the band, uh, like it, it speaks towards like their genius, where like people were like fuck, like. They don't get it yet, but they're going to get it. Like, people are going to get this eventually. We just got to make sure that this shit gets recorded now. We got to make sure that this doesn't die. So they had a lot of, they had so many people uh, behind them that were like, we believe in this shit. We believe in this music. Let's get this record out. So besides Craig producing, Suicide's first album was engineered by an in-house employee named Larry Alexander who had no fucking clue what he was about to get into. Oh, poor Larry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as far as the instruments went, Marty played the aforementioned drum machine along with an old Farfusa keyboard with broken keys. And the whole fucking thing was hooked up to a slew of electroharmonics distortion pedals plugged between the keyboard and the amp, which... When you put all that together, created Suicide's radioactive sound. Well, see, the reason why Suicide didn't sound like anyone else before or since was because Marty and Alan were poor as fuck and had to work with whatever cheap equipment they came across. And in order to make that shit sound good, they had to tweak the equipment in ways that it wasn't meant to be used. Meaning, you can't duplicate that. No, it's like repurposing stuff. Yeah, it's repurposing stuff. And like you just you cannot like you can come close like later bands came kind of close when they decided to just start fully ripping suicide off wholesale. Six six Sputnik. Oh, (laughs) but you know, but you could never duplicate that. Like the sound that comes out uh, on that first album, like it is lost because it's impossible to get that back. You just can't. You yeah. just can't. Yeah. You just cannot put together that uh, configuration of analog equipment, and uh, like you can't find that shit, like, <laughs> like because it has to be that one Farfisa keyboard that had that one thing wrong with it that had to be fixed by this other thing, and it, it it's just impossible. So that shit is just that's that's one and done. Nothing's ever going to sound like that again. 
Oh, but that makes it so magical. It's so magical. It's oh. so cool. And they recorded this whole album like pretty quickly. Like, I mean, the first time they went in, it was only four days. Like, they've been playing. Remember, they've been playing these songs for six years now, mm-hmm. and uh, they had it down already. So, since it couldn't be exactly like the live shows, uh, they decided to use lot like lots of life effects, like mm-hmm. you were talking about with all the equipment, like dub like echoes on Ellen's vocals that you can totally hear. Yeah, and like reverbs, delays, all that fancy. Wording, <laughs> and Craig Leon, he did a lot of the mixing before he had to go uh, on a trip to California, right? Uh, because he had to be talked into doing this. Even though he was a big Suicide fan, Marty Rev had to be like, "I'm going to go pick you up wherever you're living in Vermont, yeah. and take you, to drive you down four hours down, <laughs> so you can produce this record." After they recorded those first four days, Craig went out of town, and Marty Rev like listened to what they made, and he was very impressed with what Craig did, of course, like, but. He felt like it was too subtle for suicide, yeah. so he went back to Ultima and tried his hand at producing some of these tracks, <laughs> having Marty Thau kind of overlooking everything, mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course poor Larry Alexander had to work that day too. <laughs> well, Larry Alexander just did not enjoy a single second of working with suicide, <laughs> like not because they were difficult to work with, really. Uh, I think it just it wasn't what he was used to. It's he like, was this used- can't work. This shouldn't be working. <laughs> And he probably, I think he just fucking hated the music. Like, just really hated every single second of it. So it's like Marty, uh, Marty Thau, Alan, and Marty Rev. And they're sitting there with Larry uh, Alexander and obviously with a huge bag of pot. Of course, yeah. So they, I mean, they need like some sort of inspiration. So they would just get really high in the c- control room while like Marty was working. Alan and uh, Marty Thal would just be laying, lounging around and be like, yeah, that does sound good. Sounds, <laughs> yeah. They were so excited about it. Like imagine like Marty Rev playing with knobs and buttons like he's never seen before. Oh. <laughs> while e- everyone else is really high listening and Larry Alexander losing his mind <laughs> like like a Yosemite Sam. <laughs> I could describe I would imagine this session is like a wait wait session. It's like wait 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 I quit <laughs> I can't I can't I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Well, the album is unfortunately on the shorter side. Well, I guess fortunately for Larry Alexander, but unfortunately for the rest of us. This album's only seven tracks. It's short as fuck. That means we've already played every song on the album at one point in this series, save one, Frankie Teardrop. 
Frankie Teardrop is the longest song on the album. And it's the closest approximation that I've ever heard to a murder-suicide without actually being in the room while the murder-suicide is actually happening. Like, it's fucking terrifying. Inspired by a news story in which a factory worker killed his wife, kids, and himself after losing his job, Frankie Teardrop is a ten and a half minute long expiration of a desperate hell that is both personal and literal. Here is a small clip. You know, Alan, uh, Alan Vega likes to tell the story about a time there was this guy driving his car and he heard Frankie Teardrop come on in the radio. Mm-hmm. And when he heard the scream, he <laughs> almost crashed his car. <laughs> the guy hated it so much, he ripped out his radio and threw it out the window. <laughs> and, and then drove over it, then backed up and ran over it again. His own radio. Wait, how did Alan Vega know this happened? Someone told someone who told someone who told Alan Vega. And it's in a book. And on interviews and stuff. Because Alan Vega loved that. He loved that he got so much emotion out of somebody. Yeah, it, it definitely elicits an emotion. And, and, and that's, that scream, it works. But like that scream comes about four minutes into the song. Uh, and then it's six minutes of hell. Like, it's six minutes of torture. Not torture to listen to. Like, six minutes of Frankie being tortured. Because the story goes, and Frankie teardrop, Frankie loses his job in the factory, kills his wife and child in a despondent rage, and then finds himself sent to the depths of Hades to be eternally tortured by the devil. It's great. I fucking love it. Like, <laughs> love that song so much. Now, I don't really, I don't know what the song was originally about, uh, but Vega said that he rewrote and re-recorded the lyrics after he read the aforementioned news story in the New York Times while Suicide was mixing the album. Oh, I know what the song was originally about. Please tell me. Before Alan came up with those lyrics at the studio, it was actually about a detective at the racetrack (laughs) who got hired as a hitman. It was then called Frankie Teardrop versus the Space Alien. (laughs) 
Which is, <laughs> I mean, it's actually you can actually hear the demo. The, the, they have a 1976 demo online. Oh, cool! You can hear it, and it's really great because he's just telling the story about this detective. He's like, "You got to go kill for the CIA, <laughs> Vietnam vet." I mean, like, it, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I d- I didn't know that at all. I'll have to listen to that later. And then at the very very end, you can he- actually hear. I think it's Alan Vega saying like something like, "Man, that's some Ron Ashton shit." <laughs> I'm not sure about this exactly, and we'll probably never know for sure, but I think I may have found the story that inspired this song. Unless there was a rash of unemployed fathers killing their entire families in 1977 New York, this is the fucking story. (laughs) It was reported that in May of 1977, a recently unemployed father of four named James Girardi stabbed his four children to death in Westchester while they slept in their beds, then killed himself with a shotgun. Now, this isn't exactly the plot of the song because, you know, Frankie lost his job at the factory and afterwards killed his wife, his kid, and himself. There are some differences. But the slight change of characters was actually Vega putting himself into the story because Vega had worked in factories in Brooklyn throughout the 60s, even though he didn't tell anybody that he worked in factories (laughs) in Brooklyn throughout the 60s. As far as everybody else was concerned, uh, Vega... Did not have that life. Yes. He just kind (laughs) of deleted 10 years. Yep. Yep. So when the album was released just after Christmas of 77, the reviews were predictably absolutely awful. I mean, unfortunately, they were absolutely awful for the most part, at least as far as like the mainstream music reviewers went. Mainstream reviewers like Rolling Stone, who were wrong again and again when (laughs) it comes to music like this. Uh, This is from... Uh, their review in March of 1978. I've heard stolen riffs before, but this is far worse. This is the raping and pillage of entire concepts. Suicide songs are absolutely puerile, and Alan Vega's vocals convey nothing but arrogance and wholesale insensibility. If it weren't for the fact that this band has been around since the early 70s glory days of New York City's Mercer Art Center, I'd dismiss them immediately as trendy fakes. I might anyway, since persistence doesn't legitimize this kind of idiocy. Oh, God, who invited this guy? <laughs> you know, he's uh, Nick. Perso- <laughs> you know, Nick, he's always, he's always that guy in your friend group. He's always a friend of a friend. He's never your friend. He's never anybody's friend. He's Nobody just, knows whose friend he is. No, there's somebody in that group who's just like, I invited Nick. <laughs> he ran. I ran into him. A couple of days ago, yeah. he asked me what I was doing. I told him that we were doing... I'm sorry. Uh, does anybody uh, have any craft beer? Or oh, <laughs> Has anyone here heard uh, anything interesting <laughs> lately? Uh, something that maybe I might not have heard of, but of course, I I highly doubt that, no, that anyone has anything that I heard. You know, I asked myself the other day, <laughs> what... <laughs> When people answer their own questions, their names are usually Nick. (laughs) Apologies to all the Nicks out there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Except for the Nicks that we're talking about. Yes. (laughs) But one of the few people who actually got the album was Lester Bangs, who raved about suicide in an article called The Joy of Suicide. Man, he was so good at titles. Yeah. (laughs) And it was Lester Bangs who played the record for a pioneering German electronic group named... Kraftwerk. (laughs) 
us, hello, we are here to sell you uncomfortable furniture. <laughs> Did you like our music video? <laughs> well, the funny thing about Kraftwerk is that I uh, assumed uh, that Suicide knew who Kraftwerk was. Like, I assumed that, you know, because Kraftwerk had been around since, like, I think, 72 or 73, something yeah. like that. Like, I assumed that they just, they knew about him. Uh but I think it was Marty Rev. You said that like he's like, yeah, I heard a suicide, or I heard Kraftwerk in like '83, '84, something like that. Like, <laughs> like they were running parallel to each other, and, and Kraftwerk was um, a lot more like Autobahn is a pretty fun song. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it it, and it was a a slight hit here, like in America, like very very slight. I think they released like a three and a half minute long uh, version because the original version of Autobahn is like. Ten and a half minutes, but I think it was also big in America because the lyrics is "Faren Faren Faren on der Autobahn," which means "Drive, drive, drive on the highway." Dri- <laughs> <laughs> or remember that time they almost uh, kidnapped Bunny Lebowski, <laughs> but it turned out they didn't. It was Amy Mann the whole time. Uh, but you know yeah suicide never knew about Kraftwerk like during their more uh, experimental years um, but Kraftwerk loved suicide so much that they fucking stole Lester Bang's copy of the first record yeah like, <laughs> he's like we will be taking that now <laughs> what yep. yes yes that is ours now <laughs> yes we will be okay yes so goodbye Lester we're going to be taking your album now just kiss kiss <laughs> goodbye <laughs> I think that's exactly how it happened <laughs> like I said, man, like Suicide, they were destined to be a musician's band. Uh, during this time, like other musicians love them. A couple of critics love them. Not all. Like they were not a critic's darling. Like Lester Bangs liked him and that was about it. Uh, and Melody Maker also had like some respect for him. Uh, but most audiences uh, fucking hated him. Just absolutely could not stand him. And this fact was no more on display than it was during Suicide's 1978 UK tour. Now, Marty Thau had secured a UK distributing deal for Suicide through a guy named Howard Thompson at Bronze Records. When Thompson first saw Suicide, he was absolutely fucking terrified of him, but he still thought that they were the best thing he'd seen on a rock and roll stage. And that included the Stooges. And this is when the Stooges were fresh. Yes. I mean, they were, uh, I mean, okay, they were over by like, you know, five or six years. Yeah, seven years. Like they'd been over for a while, but nothing that anybody had seen had come even close to the Stooges until Suicide. Well, the thing is, Howard Thompson, he was an A&R guy. Mm. He worked for Bronze for about a year. But before that, when he was an A&R, he would actually fly to New York all the time to check out bands. And that's where he would like get high and party and maxes and you know CBGBs <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So when he actually got a hold of the record, like he played it in in his office in the UK. And it was just, it was so loud. The scream, the Frankie teardrop. Mm. I mean, his boss was even like on the phone. He's just like, turn that off. <laughs> and that's what... Howard Thompson knew like I need to fly to New York yeah I need to meet these guys so Howard calls Marty Thau and they arrange to meet at like at a Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. and afterwards they go upstairs to the Red Star office it's in like Midtown like a uh, Carnegie Hall area oh yeah oh yeah glitzy yes <laughs> although he, when he walks he's like wow this this is cool they were like we're in the offices and then he opens it up and it's just like a table <laughs> and a chair it's like barren spend all the money on rent <laughs> 
Exactly. And so what happened is like they, they started passing a joint around. And Howard Thompson says, like, he's like, well, you know, I, I would party a little bit, but like, you know, usually in the UK, they put tobacco in these things. And there was none. It was just full on pot. Yeah. So after two hits, he was really stoned. <laughs> and that's when he got to meet Marty Rev and Alan Vega, dressed up in their studded outfits. <laughs> like really, full road warrior. Yes, exactly. Like he, Howard Thompson said, he was so intimidated. He was like freaking out, like because Marty was like the quiet one, and Alan just looked like a Puerto Rican thug who looked like he was gonna shank him in any second. <laughs> <laughs> and but eventually, it, it seemed like it turned out well for Howard Thompson because they all went to uh, to the show. They checked him out at uh, Max's, and he was like, "That's when he saw like what the regular set was like." You know, Alan hitting himself with the microphone, bleeding, spilling drinks, half the audience leaving, and Howard watched out thinking wow i just attended a suicide show <laughs> and survived and that's how he was he was just like all about this uh band after that he he liked liked them as friends they became lifelong friends like you know he was able to secure a deal with bronze and red star for about that whole year yeah i mean howard thompson was a, a hell of a figure in music like you were telling me uh, last night when we were watching uh, hardware and lemmy shows up uh that howard thompson was the guy who uh gave motorhead their chance yeah because bronze back then was like the label that that it was like the last chance label. Like, mm-hmm. like if everyone said no, <laughs> U.S. France back then. And so like they were really in bad shape and Howard Thompson brought on Mortarhead and Mortarhead got huge. Mm-hmm. And then that's when he was able to get like enough clout to just be like, no, listen to me, Suicide, that, that's the next band. Oh, and speaking of which, uh, Hardware, forgotten fucking classic amazing <laughs> we watched it so last night good. so fucking good uh. iggy pop plays like the if you you know out there those of you who uh play uh, video games like he's the original three dog it's like <laughs> <laughs> i don't know like, what that means but it, i laughed it, yeah he's a post-apocalyptic radio dj named angry bob yeah. uh <laughs> he's fucking great dylan mcdermott's in it uh it's uh yeah post-apocalyptic cyberpunk industrial awesomeness it's fucking great really fun yeah it's really fun now the funny thing about punk in the 70s is that even though there's still a new punk band born every day in 2020 the original punk scenes in both the united states and the uk were over and done with in an incredibly short amount of time like when it was still fun and new and original a couple of years at most and by the time suicide arrived in the uk they found a scene that was rigid and hostile. I mean, this was just people acting how they thought they should act rather than thinking for themselves. The yep. rules were set up. Oh. This is what a punk band should be. This is what it should sound like. This is what a punk fan should be. This is how we should act. And in the UK, that meant acting like a fucking dickhead. Oh, I hated like running into those people like growing up. It's like, well, yeah, you like them? Like, name three albums. Yeah, it's fine. Fuck I, off, I, I, I'm not going to name three albums. <laughs> Right. Can I just enjoy something? Can you just let another person enjoy Can I just something? wear the Ramon shirt? Can I just wear it? Yeah, well, sometimes I would like to fuck with people and just say like, oh, I'm actually not a Ramones fan. I'm more of a Ramones t-shirt fan. <laughs> uh, can you name three of their other t-shirts? <laughs> So they got an offer to play at the International Science Fiction Festival That's, in France. Sounds like so much fun. Yeah, and guess what? They were co-headlining with keynote speaker Frank Herbert. Dune! Yeah, author of Dune. 
And also, that's when they uh, they screened or uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead at, at the same time. No shit. So it's it's Eraserhead, Frank Herbert, and Suicide. Yes. So it's it sounds like a vacation that me and Henry would take together. Exactly. <laughs> and so, like this, uh, you know, international science fiction festival thing going on. Uh, they offered to like pay like minimal expenses. So Marty Thau was like, "Oh, this is how I can get them to Europe." Right. With like barely any money. So Marty Thau jumped at it and and sent them there since like Suicide was already getting great critic reviews from the UK. Yeah. So he thought like, what could go wrong? Yeah, that's because that's what Suicide thought. They're like, okay, America doesn't get it, whatever. But Europe, oh, man, once we get to Europe, the Europeans, they're going to fucking get this. They're going to be all over us, man. Didn't work out like that at all. I mean, it even started out badly. Like, their equipment shorted because they're like, oh, right, uh, power outlets are different here. Uh, And then the French audience just did not like it. No. 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 One of them threw a chair at Alan. Yeah. And that started a trend in Europe. Marty got hit with a boot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They found that the European crowds... The violence was much worse than it was in America, or at least in New York City. Uh, It was a million times worse. They were about to go through probably the worst time of their lives, playing shows in the UK and around Europe. And the reason why they were able to do this was because the big names in the UK punk scene were huge suicide fans. You know, of course, bands, when they do tours, they choose their own opener a lot. Uh, And that's how Suicide ended up touring with two of the biggest acts of the day. The first was Elvis Costello. was that people who were going out to see Elvis Costello not only weren't ready to hear something like suicide, they reacted with a level of actual violence that far surpassed anything that suicide had seen before. And it was during the very first show suicide played with Costello in Europe that all hell broke loose in Brussels. Now this show was actually recorded And at the end of the recording, which was released later as the live album 23 Minutes in Brussels, you can hear the whole fucking thing fall apart. This is the moment when an audience member climbed on stage and physically took away Alan Vega's microphone. Listen, we're just fucking a bunch of poor musicians like every one of you, man. We'd like to have that microphone back, otherwise the show don't go on. Please, please, 
<laughs> that was the promoter saying, like, guys, you're going to have to go home if you don't get back to Mike. <laughs> I mean, it's in a way, it's sad. It, it is sad to hear because he's just like, Oh, come on, man. Like, yeah. just give me the fucking, uh, just give me the fucking microphone back. Like, I'm just, uh, I thought this was going to be cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I thought this was, I thought people were going to, fi- I mean, it was a moment of disappointment. I was just like, I thought people were finally going to fucking get this. Oh, it's the same. Uh, oh, it's the same everywhere. The entire world. Fucking hey. All right. Fine. Fine. But worse. <laughs> well, the thing is, is like, uh, as I said before, like, you have to be in the mood for suicide, right? A lot of these times, like, people want to go see a show, they want to party, want to hang out, all that kind of stuff. Especially well, Elvis Costello, because Elvis Costello is, I mean, it's good time music. Yeah, he's a little poppy, yeah. you know? It's enjoyable. And I totally understand that. Like, but how they got this visceral reaction is an insane thing. Yeah. Like, the audience in Brussels, like, they were, you could even hear it if you, uh, you know, you can find it on YouTube, they're chanting, like, Elvis, Elvis. The whole time, Marty and Alan are trying to play their like music. Yeah, people were like freaking out. They were ripping tiles out of the walls and throwing them on stage, and like it, it was so bad. Like eventually, when when Alan just walked out, and because you can hear that at the end of the twenty three minutes in Brussels, uh, when Alan walked out, it just erupted into a loud cheer. Yeah, actually, let's listen to what happens when suicide finally goes off stage. Okay, so I'm not European, <laughs> but there is a there is a term that they call in Europe and in, sometimes in Latin America, where I'm really from. Mm-hmm. It's a thing called soccer violence, <laughs> and this is the beginning of what we're about to see, yeah. right? Because yeah. <laughs> once uh, Elvis did get on stage, but uh, by then the police were called and they showed up in like riot gear and like tear gassing people. Yeah, they had th- so the whole band they like the su- suicide they had to like escape because you know they were on tour with uh, Marty Thal, uh, Marion Lena, like Troy Trakin, like the, he they had their little group, the crew. Yeah, exactly. They had to escape through the fire exit into a car to <laughs> like speed them away. But it's not before like Alan Vega and Marty Rav like watched an actual riot happen because of them a riot with police and tear gas and all that shit looking out laughing their asses off (laughs) (laughs) and then like we should go we go oh shit oh yeah yeah, okay we gotta go and then when they met up with Elvis Costello and the band like in an after hours party like they got like a hero's welcome (laughs) like a slow clap like hey guys well First night on the tour, huh? <laughs> that first, was the first, first night. show. That was the first fucking show. And that's, you know, like they, that is true artistic courage. You know, where it's like, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep going. And tomorrow, oh, it uh, caused a riot last night. Cool. Same set tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Elvis Costello even like, you know, he ran into Marty Thau like outside the hotel. Elvis Costello is like holding his laundry bag. Mm-hmm. And he looks at Marty uh, and he goes like, uh, so, uh. Uh, you guys are going to start a riot tonight? Because me and the band really want a night off. <laughs> that, 
was another ride at the Hague. Like, that was not the only ride of the tour. And the thing is, like, Elvis Costello, he fucking loved it. Yes. Because when he finally got to the, when he did actually get to play, I mean, he just, he loved playing crowds who were all fucked up from listening to Suicide for half an hour. He liked the energy. Oh, the Hague. Yeah, that's in the, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when, uh, that was the one where people started, like, knifing the seats, <laughs> ripping them apart. And then, seriously, like, the next day, the headlines read, Suicide causes $100,000 worth of damage. <laughs> suicide didn't do shit. I don't know why they had it in dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? In some shows, they actually did kind of like, a, they, they did better yeah. in some shows with Elvis in, you know, Hamburg and Berlin. Uh, at the Berlin show, actually, that was when Alan was like, you know, getting people's faces, screaming and stuff. And then like, there was these guys in like these weird suits uh, hanging there. And he was like in their faces. And then someone like tapped Alan and was like, ah, uh, Alan, that's craft work. <laughs> and Alan's like, holy shit. <laughs> They're here watching us. <laughs> and that you can, uh, that's in uh, 21 and a half minutes in Berlin. That yeah. was another recording that Howard Thompson did as well. I mean, there are uh, a lo- actually a lot of recordings of uh, suicide during this time. It's just it's hard for us to play them on on this show because it's super fan material. Yeah, you're not gonna enjoy it. Yeah, like, no, no. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to hear it, like go go on out to like it's it's all uh, on YouTube. There was actually a uh, a box set released a few years ago uh, that is I think seven CDs long. It's fucking great. It's really cool, but it's definite super fan material if you really want to hear what these shows were like and how fucking crazy they actually were because uh, if I played them right now you're not going to enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> the show would be over the show would be over so after Elvis Costello another UK band wanted Suicide to open on their European tour and since the Sex Pistols had already self-destructed these guys were the biggest punk band in the UK and arguably the planet it was the Clash! like uh, when they did this out on parole tour Mm -hmm. this is like uh, between their first and second album and uh, they were just like a huge band like they were very huge in the punk scene of course by then so they were able to bring up acts that they wanted to uh, to open for them yeah. you know even later they even had like Bo Diddley they had uh, Mikey Dredd they had uh, uh, Sam and Dave <laughs> Sam and Dave? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whoever they wanted. <laughs> and, you know, Mick Jones, being a huge fan of Suicide, was excited to have them open for them. And Suicide was fucking super excited as well. Because, I mean, I would imagine they'd think, all right, Elvis Costello, it's a little more good timey. It's not as hard. Like, Clash, they're hard. They're fast. Like, they're the fucking stalwarts of the punk scene. People are going to get it. Nope. Even worse. <laughs> <laughs> 
so much worse with The Clash than it was with Elvis Costello. During the first gig, Alan got spat on by the crowd so much that the his fucking clothes changed color. They call it gobbing. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a... That's gross. Fucking, I don't get it. I don't get it. It was an awful thing that the, the British kids did back in the 70s. The punks is like they spit on you. And sometimes they spit on you because they liked you. Sometimes uh. they just spat on... They just like spitting all the time. It was fucking disgusting. Okay, let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> Suicide, that first gig, made it 20 minutes before they were forced to leave. I know. Because he was covered in fucking spit. It was uh, like... Get yelled at and getting shit thrown at him was one thing like that that was all right used to that can i can handle that but getting spat on so much that your clothes change color he had to go to dry cleaners every day god damn then there came glasgow now there are some who dispute this story but there are others who swear on their lives that they actually saw this happen The story goes that this was a venue that was known to have a particularly volatile crowd. And from the moment Suicide walked on stage, people were pissed off because they saw there was no guitar player. Because remember what we said in the first episode about there being rigid rules in the land of punk, even in the early days? This was a prime example of it. No guitar, fuck you. So within minutes, drunk Glaswegians started throwing anything they could find. A lot of chairs, a lot of bottles. Oh, and coins, too. <laughs> At the end of the show, Marty and Alan would try to, like, pick up all the coins because, hey, it was a lot of money. <laughs> and it, Marty even had to use uh, one of those uh, per, uh, Perspex uh, glass shields mm-hmm. to, like, actually, like, shield all his equipment. Jesus. Like, they had to set that up for him. Because imagine 4,000 angry, drunk Scottish punks. <laughs> And Marty is playing with his eyes closed. <laughs> and Alan's just taunting them, like smashing his microphone in his face, yelling like, you and me, man, we're on the same side. <laughs> and they just didn't get it. No. And they were so fucking angry that in Glasgow, a guy actually threw a fucking axe at Alan Vega's head and it missed him by inches and landed on the stage behind him. But instead of leaving, Vega kept going, using a tried-and-true method he'd learned back home in New York. See, when crowds got to be a bit much in New York, Vega, he'd use a tactic, very popular in the wrestling world as well, break a beer bottle, cut his own face, just a little bit. But if you're sweating a hell of a whole lot, just a little bit of blood looks like a whole fuckload of blood. (laughs) And so it looked like he was gonna die on stage, but was still performing at the same level of energy. It fucking weirds people out. And it kind of got them to stop booing a little bit. <laughs> they were just like, what the hell is he doing? Like, that was an angry show, uh, Glasgow. Like, it was like, I, even the Clash were mad about what was going on. Like, Joe Strummer, uh, he was just so angry. Like, he just, like, broke, like, a lemonade bottle, mm-hmm. like, out of frustration. And then the cops came and rounded him up. <laughs> and then Paul's, uh, Paul Simonon, he would try to inter- intervene, you know. But then he got arrested, too. <laughs> because there's this angry riot going on with the bouncers, the fans, the cops. Cops, you know, and, and so like they actually like the clash actually had to like pay a fine to not disrupt the whole tour all because suicide just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then there was one night in Crawley uh, where this huge guy climbed like the PA system, got on stage and punched Alan in the face and broke his nose. Jesus. Yeah. Like security ran over to like grab the band and get him off. And Alan actually waved them away. 
which I think earned the respect of some of those people in the crowd. Yeah. Like, fuck you. I'll de- yeah, I can deal with it. I can handle it. I mean, I guess... I mean, they I took it as best they could. I mean, Alan, like, they did say that he did, like, smash up his dressing room out of frustration after a couple shows. So. I, <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. I mean, it's just... It's disappointment, you know? It really like, is. Because they, they really did think, like, these are the people that are going to get us. And they reacted like it was fucking Vivaldi playing the Rites of Spring. Like, <laughs> like it was like, yeah. that. it was that same. That might have been better. <laughs> it was that same thing. Like, you know, like, that's that's the story. Uh, the, the story about Vivaldi is that when he first premiered Rites of Spring uh, in the, at the 1800s, there was a full-on riot. People lost their minds because their brains actually could not handle the sounds that they were hearing. Well, he should have smashed a bottle over his head. Because <laughs> that's what exactly yeah. what Alan would do. He would just smash it on his head because people were trying to hit him, so he'd just do it himself. He's like, how about that, you fucking idiots? <laughs> and that's pretty much how the whole tour went. Like Brighton, Bristol, Cardiff, Birmingham, etc. Like, you know, all these shows that they did. But it was in Blackburn, England, after the George's Hall show, that they got busted. I mean, quote unquote busted. Well, after the show, <laughs> yes, yes, it was a very it's quote unquote. That, it's not that big of a bust. <laughs> well, it was on the headlines everywhere. <laughs> Suicide in the Clash, they go back to their hotel where they have a little after party after the show, right? Yeah. And, you know, some groupies, of course, uh, Clash groupies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy And the guys were like having fun breaking like bottles and glasses in a fireplace, you mm-hmm. know, like they're just doing all kinds of rebel rousing shit. Guy stuff. Yeah. And then, but someone called the police to like complain about all the noise and all the shit that was going down. So by the time the police came, Marty and Alan were already asleep. <laughs> so they were woken up. They were asked a bunch of questions uh, and then rounding them up with the clash down to the police station. And because they found some coke within uh, w- with some of the roadies, the clash roadies, and they found a pipe and a little bit of pot on Marty Thau. Mm-hmm. He bought a little bit in Amsterdam. You yeah. know, I mean, what are you going to do? So they threw him in the cell, which Marty asked nicely for his pipe back. <laughs> <laughs> Alan said that they took their shoelaces and he's like, like, I'm going to off myself because of a minor drug offense. <laughs> So Marty and Alan go before the judge and they tried really hard not to laugh mm-hmm. because he didn't they didn't realize like, oh, in Britain, like, you know, the judges and lawyers there are, are barristers or whatever. They got uh, the wigs. They're wearing wigs. <laughs> so they're there. Marty's shaking so hard. Try not to laugh out loud. <laughs> the judge did not appreciate that. They were actually fined 200 pounds each for oh. the pot that eventually was found to be 80 percent vegetable matter <laughs> yeah. which means marty got swing swindled in amsterdam and bought oregano <laughs> <laughs> and you can hear uh, i mean because they wrote a song kind of about it you can hear it on the second album uh called mr ray mm-hmm. uh to howard uh to howard t which is for howard thompson because uh it was dedicated to him in a way because he served as a character witness for them and mr ray being the name of the inspector who arrested them <laughs> Oh man, that's the most innocent. I mean, it's very, it's yeah. very suicide. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. So after finishing their tour with the Clash, Suicide was given their own headlining UK tour because it was, you know, people were starting to realize in the UK the same thing that everyone in New York realized: you don't have Suicide open. Right. You just don't. Like you have what you need with Suicide is you have to have people who choose. 
to be there. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like I've been you, saying this forever. <laughs> you got to have people choose to listen to Suicide, choose to go to the show. And the people who went and saw it fucking loved it because they were going to see Suicide. So they played four dates, and on one of those dates, they were supported by an up-and-coming band from Manchester called Joy Division. Well, the thing is about these shows, like these headlining shows, that the kids going and seeing them were the ones who would later start the big new wave bands of the 80s, like Soft Cell and Depeche Mode, for better or worse, depending on how much you like those bands. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big new wave guy myself, but I know Violator is technically a very good album. You know I like to dance to it. Of course. Of course. It's, it's fun. It's yeah. fun. But in these headlining shows, they did, uh, you know, they did Manchester with Joy Division and Liverpool, but it was Edinburgh. That, that was the most memorable one because there were about three songs in when Alan told Marty okay watch out because shit's gonna start flying in this is Scotland yeah because he, <laughs> he can kind of see the audience moving in and so he's like oh this is gonna be bad mm-hmm. and then he goes back to the mic and then this huge disco ball just turns on <laughs> and then he could see the audience and he looks into the audience and he sees that they're actually dancing oh Alan went back to Marty and said we are fucked man <laughs> we are finished this audience I can't incite it you know like they're dancing man Alan thought his career was over. <laughs> he essentially like, it's over now. We should just pack up and go home. Yeah. But with that kind of strong reaction, you know, you're saying about the soft cells and the pish mode. I mean, like, uh, there were kids like lining up their, in their dressing rooms, wanting to meet them, like asking them questions with notebooks in hand, like getting to know them. Like, you know, like the kids, like a human league saw them at Leeds. Oh, cool. And they even got an encore one time, which I know is not, <laughs> I mean, a, within a, a month. Actually, that's a big fucking deal. I know. <laughs> In London, out of all places. That's cool. I mean, it, it did prove that, like, you know, if, if people chose to see them, then people love them. You know, like, if you're going to see it, because, you know, I get it. I get if you're going to see... Elvis Costello, especially, or like The Clash, and Suicide shows up, you might be pissed off. You might not want to see that because it was difficult. (laughs) It was very difficult, especially when there's no frame of reference for this band. I've never taken off my shoe, though, (laughs) and thrown it at an opening band. This is when you go to the bar. I mean, but when there's absolutely no reference 
for a band. Like this is like the music that they were playing. Like the like if you were to go to see like a punk band now or like a rock band. Like say you're going to see a rock band and an electronic band uh, opens up, you'd be like, okay, like I may not be enjoying this, but you could at the very least like you just ignore it because right. or if you're a smoker, you go outside. You go outside, yeah, yeah, or you sit at the back and you know talk with your friends. You know that that's if you don't like it, that's you know that would be the reasonable. Reaction. Yes. (laughs) But back then, there was no frame of reference for this. So not only was it something they'd never heard before, it was something that sounded like a nightmare. It made these people feel bad. Some people, they loved it. Like, it was some people, they heard it, and they're like, this is the music I've been waiting to hear all my fucking life. Uh, But most people uh, did not enjoy not being given a choice when it came to suicide. I blame Speed for that. (laughs) When suicide returned to New York City they found that respect had finally come in their hometown as well. In their absence, a new scene had evolved inspired by suicide style called No Wave. Oh, right. Okay. First of all, let me just say, I respect everyone's taste in music, (laughs) in genre, whatever gets you riled up and happy. I'm happy for you. I think that's great. It's great. That's awesome. But if you're a No Wave fan... I can't help you. <laughs> I mean, why don't we just call it miscellaneous? <laughs> I mean, no way. It's without a doubt the hardest genre of rock to even fucking enjoy. You My- really have to go in like thrift store. Like you have to really pick out the right ones. Yeah. you. <laughs> it's a digger. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely got to dig through these things. But I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Like I said, it's hard to even enjoy, much less get into fully. And I... Well, fully admit, I do enjoy noise. I love noise rock. I love that. Ch- you know, there's some shit that I absolutely like. I'll, I'll listen to Lightning Bolt until the fucking sun comes up. But No Wave is too much even for me, at least for the most part. There's some new No Wave bands that I really like. You know, it's like this scene made up of bands like Mars, DNA, Theoretical Girls, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. I mean, No Wave is highly fucking obnoxious. It's nearly unlistenable, <laughs> like save for one or two bands. But that was that was sort of the point. Like the, the yeah. p- sort of the I mean, the point of it is that it's supposed to be challenging and unlistenable. That's fine. It's fine. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. I mean, but really about the only artist who made music that came even close to a song like structure was James Chance, uh, who also played under James White and the Blacks, who also played under the Contortions. Uh, although I'm not going to burn grudge anybody who doesn't like it and I will fully admit that when I was listening to James Chance the most and was super into it I was doing a lot of cocaine Uh, (laughs) I'll fully admit that and that might be why I loved it so much or at least part of why I loved it so much I don't know judge for yourself this is contort yourself contort yourself So 
That's great, actually. You like it? Marcus, I think I like No Way. <laughs> at the very least, J- James... You know what, darling? We got three James Chance records at home. We can yeah. go listen to it tonight. Awesome. <laughs> no, I fucking love that song. And there's like four or five, I think three versions of that song. But uh, yeah, that's the first version, the James Chance version. But yeah, that's what we call the cocaine beat. Oh. <laughs> and gotcha. that song's also six and a half minutes long. Uh, it's fucking great. I love Contort Yourself. But the band that was definitely carrying the torch of suicide and, you know, not just being annoying while being supremely smug about it like other new wave artists I could mention. (laughs) (laughs) He tells it how it is, guys. (laughs) There's one in particular. Anyway, uh, the band carrying the torch of suicide, DNA. Suicide with live instruments. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's super fucking cool. You know what? I think I realized what it is uh, about certain No Way bands that I really hate. Uh, if it's instrumental, uh, I like it. If it's just people like warbling and yowling and yelling, can't stand it. Ah. I think that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay, glad we got to the bottom of that. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to add. <laughs> Now, it makes sense that bands like DNA were big fans of Suicide, and it follows that this would be the type of music the fans of Suicide would produce. But one of their most surprising fans was Rick Ocasek of The Cars. Although after listening to one of their songs through the lens of Ocasek being a Suicide fan, it actually made a lot more sense. the cars love the cars love the cars <laughs> so fucking good and Rico Kasich like yes he was a big fan he found out about suicide by uh, like listening to jukebox at Max's oh that's cool yeah he heard it he's like this is great and he was living with his band at the time in Boston so when suicide went up to Boston he went up to go watch them perform that's cool he was blown away and he actually went like backstage after the show and he told Marty and Alan how much he liked their music and he brought the rest of the band with them too and they're all like you guys are great this is amazing. Like, he would even talk about it in the press. And this is when, like, the cars were really hitting. Gigantic. It, yes. They were huge, huge rock stars by then. And so, Rick Ocasek wanted to work with Suicide. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why the hell not? I mean, because that's the cool thing. Like, he was just kind of at the point where, like, I'm Rick Ocasek. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Yes. <laughs> 
So after Okasik and Suicide decided to work together, they headed into the studio to record a single. That song ended up being by far Suicide's most well-known track, Dream Baby Dream. Unfortunately, though, right around the time that they recorded this single was the same time that their label, Red Star, completely disintegrated. Well, the thing is, like, their album wasn't selling very well. No, it was selling pretty badly. Yeah, and, and like, you know, there were some bad reviews, of course. Like, John Lydon, he uh, reviewed it and called uh, Cherie a version of Jatem with uh. tape hiss. Oh yeah, God, John Lydon's such a fucking dickhead. Alan was pissed, and he actually confronted John <laughs> about this like years later. And John was like jokingly like he bit his hand, Alan's hand. I don't know why. Because John Lydon's a fucking dickhead. And He's a child. He is. A, we'll talk about this in our Sex Pistols series, but they're all fucking children. Well, what happened in the end, though? Alan and John ended up just spending several hours hanging out, partying together, <laughs> and then they decided that they were okay. All right, yeah, we're friends. Oh yeah. Fine. Maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it takes like three hours of being in John Lydon's presence and then you get it. Really? I don't know. <laughs> we'll never fucking find out. We'll never find out. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but while Suicide was kind of left in the lurch in the late 70s, Charles Ball, who was Suicide's sound guy on the European tour, approached Martin Rev and asked him if he'd like to do a solo record for his label Lust Unlust. The result was an album full of fascinating experimental soundscapes, but the whole thing kicked off with possibly the sweetest song Rev ever wrote, completely instrumental, dedicated to his wife, Mary.
sometimes that song actually brings a little tear to my eye. Really? Yeah, it's, it's very... It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's an extremely emotional song. But yeah, I, I mean, it's... It's just beautiful. It's just, <laughs> it's just a one. Uh, being a guy who like did college radio from 2001 to 2006, I'm sure that's no fucking surprise to anybody that I did that. Uh, I think there were probably 30% of the bands sending CDs to college radio at that time trying to duplicate that sound. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they did well. Uh, Postal Service did fucking great. Who? <laughs> So, in 1979, Suicide was invited by the Cars to open at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles with predictably disastrous results. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they got to open uh, for the Cars in front of 15,000 people. Yeah, but you don't... It's, again, you don't force suicide on somebody. It's hard. I know. I know. And the fun, the funny thing is, like, they both show up in, like, this tiny little beat-up car. They park next to, like, these massive trailers beep, beep. that the car... <laughs> the, the cars had, you know, the, all their equipment, all their setup. Like, it was huge. Yeah. And um, everyone working at the venue like came out and was like all right guys where where's all your equipment where's all your roadies and alan and marty just opened up the trunk and like here it is <laughs> <laughs> and in the show it as you said it kind of went exactly like expected yeah. you know like uh alan described the show as um <clears throat> the sound was like a hurricane you know what that was the sound of booze. <laughs> of course. He's like, I've never heard anything like that. I mean, this is even worse than having them open for The Clash or even Elvis Costello. Because those are people that are at least going there to see music that is aggressive and new. You know, even though it was rooted in rock and roll, like it's still aggressive. Uh, the Cars... Like, that's a top ten band. Yeah. Like, that—that that is one of the most popular bands in America. And that's just regular fucking folk going. To, <laughs> like, that, that's just regular jerk-offs just going to see the cars. They're not going to like suicide. <laughs> well, no. No, it did not work out. Uh, or when they did the Universal Amphitheater. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they got booed like crazy, of course. Yeah. Especially when Alan would say, like, the L.A. Dodgers suck, man. <laughs> <laughs> and he did the same thing in Boston. He's like, what a bunch of pussies, just like your Red Sox. <laughs> well, he knew he was, there were regular folk in the audience, but he was also like, yeah, fucking Yankees, Matt, time. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously all kinds of shit was thrown on the stage, like coins again. Again. Uh, but they did make 60 bucks that, day, that night. Jesus Christ, that's a lot of coins. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's like 60 bucks and change. That's a lot of fucking coins. And the venue was like right next to Bob Hope's house, <laughs> where his golf course was. And they were told not to curse. Uh -huh. And so... What, in case Bob Hope gets offended? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> and so like the people at the venue were like, uh, we got to pull like Alan and Marty off stage. Alan is like cursing up a storm, mm -hmm. right? And Rick Ocasek goes like, if suicide gets pulled off, the cars aren't playing. Yeah. Because he was such a good friend. Such a good friend. And so, so like, uh, they did their set. The Rick Ocasek goes up with his band. And just Rick Ocasek just, like, just dropping F-bombs wherever, anytime he could. <laughs> a big middle finger to Bob Hope. The song's called Just What I Fucking Needed. <laughs> <laughs> the next one's called You're All I Fucking Got Tonight. <laughs> Let's fucking go. Let the good times fucking roll. I can do this all night. <laughs> <laughs> 
One cool thing about their relationship with the Cars was that Rick and the gang happened to be hosting an episode of the weekly broadcast music show, The Midnight Special, which gave Suicide their first and only TV appearance. Yeah, Alan said that by the time they got on, he was so drunk, but <laughs> they, he he made it through. He made it. It's a good performance. Yeah, you, you can see it on uh, on YouTube. I, was that in front of a live audience? I think so. Because when Suicide, because they played Dream Baby Dream, and when Suicide finishes playing, you can hear an audible cough, like it's just <laughs> someone going. <coughs> <laughs> And then it, they loved it. And then it fades to black. <laughs> Just held that in the whole time. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call if you're paying too much for wireless service you don't have to keep having that nightmare consumer cellular has the same fast reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Soon after, though, a post-punk label named Z.E. signed Suicide, and work began on their second album. Oh, that's all thanks to uh, their buddy Howard Thompson. Oh, Howard Thompson again. Yeah, he gave a tape to, uh, a, a suicide tape to uh, Michael uh, Zika, mm-hmm. the, well, you know, one of the co-founders of Z.E. Records, obviously. Obviously. Well, produced by Rick Okasik, Suicide, Alan Vega, and Martin Rev was wildly different from the first album. This time, rather than using whatever broken-down instruments Martin Rev could tweak in a submission in a small studio upstate, Suicide was given a $10,000 equipment budget to record the album at the Power Station in Times Square. How cool is that? I mean, it's ritzy as fuck. The Power Station, I mean, that's... That's big time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to take advantage of it, too. So, like, they were set off into Sam Ash, and they're like, you mean we can get whatever we want? (laughs) Coincidentally, though, when Suicide walked into the studio, they found that the engineer for their second album was the same guy from the first, Larry Alexander. (laughs) And Larry almost quit on the spot rather than work with Suicide again. Hey, hey, is that Larry? <laughs> hey, Larry! Hi, Larry! Hey, I'm Mr. Larry. How are you been? Hey, where are you? Where, where are you? Where's he going? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Rick Ocasek is going to produce. Oh, welcome back. Yeah, welcome yeah. back. Thank you very much. But unlike a lot of their contemporaries, or at least the fans of their contemporaries, as you said, Suicide fucking loved disco. And with good reason. Disco can be a fantastically interesting genre if you know where to look. And there's plenty of good disco out there. I agree. How many Bee Gees albums do I have? Two. Oh, okay. Well, I still agree. <laughs> They're great. I mean, there's we got a pretty good disco collection at the house. I mean, if for an example, one of my favorite disco records, check out this track from disco veteran Desmond Child, who later went on to write damn near every Bon Jovi hit in addition to songs for Joan Jett, Kiss, and Cher. Around, 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 
tasty fucking bass. You know, love is insane. <laughs> yeah, if you want to listen to that song, yeah, Desmond Child and Rouge, uh, Our Love is Insane. Unfortunately, it's not on Spotify anymore, but you can uh, listen to it uh, over on YouTube. Fucking love that track. It's fan- Even that, that whole album is great. If you can just dig through the dollar bins <laughs> <laughs> at record stores. That's where I found it. Uh, uh, come on over. We'll lend it to you. <laughs> Now, since Martin Rev was listening to more disco at the time, their second album had a little more groove than the first, as it does on the opening track, Diamonds, Fur Coats, Champagne. this song it's a great song I, I love the album I, I know like I know it's a little bit different from the first one but mm-hmm. I like them both like like they're my children <laughs> love them for different reasons yes the second album for me it's a little too slick for my taste I like the first album more because you know part of what I love about Suicide at least the first record is the fucking pure raw Weirdness. Well, this is a lot. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot more polished. And then you got Rick Ocasek, you know, obviously putting in a lot of his work into it, Mm -hmm. especially because when they recorded it, like Alan just concentrated on the vocals. Yeah. And Marty and Rick only worked on the music. And then they came together at the very, very end. And we've had this conversation before about the new Sleater Kinney album. (laughs) And I still think it's great. I still don't like it. (sighs) (laughs) We don't agree on everything. We can't agree on everything. We can't have everything in common. We can't. We really can't. That would be weird. But, you know, this album, like, arguably this album, you you could argue that this album is actually more influential than the first. uh, Because I think this album had more of influence on, like, later industrial bands and some of the later, like, goth like goth-ish bands like like Susie Sue uh, fucking absolutely loves the second album like puts it as one of her favorite albums cites it as a huge influence and you know and there are some tracks on the album that I fucking love like Shadaz is fucking great Guys. 
super fucking goth. (laughs) (laughs) But it was while they were recording the second album that something serendipitous ended up happening. Bruce Springsteen was recording his album The River down the hall. And as it turned out, Springsteen was also a massive suicide fan. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, man recognizes good songwriting when he hears it. Yes, he does. Actually, he became friends with them. Yeah. Especially Alan, like, because when they were, like, kind of hanging out at the studio while, you know, they were recording and everything, like, Bruce Springsteen really liked hanging out with Alan because he had, like, a little bit of a flask mm-hmm. and just let him have a few sips, you know, you know, you know, just for fun. Yeah, just having fun. Just guys having fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like years later, Springsteen would pay nightly homage to suicide by closing each show with a cover of Dream Baby Dream. It was fucking huge. Springsteen wanted to play it at the Super Bowl, but they wouldn't let him. Why not? They just said it wasn't right for it. <sighs> they said it wasn't right. But yeah, that's Alan Vega. I actually told that story during a terrible interview I saw. Uh, Alan Vega and Martin Rev were great. The interviewer was fucking awful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It happens. It happens. But yeah, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen always uh, played our music. I always got to play to the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they didn't want it. They said no. So, you know, we almost got to play to the Super Bowl. So that's cool. That is pretty cool. <laughs> it's very cool. But in the more immediate realm, Suicide's influence was greatly felt on Springsteen's next, and in my opinion, best album, Nebraska. vocals that's pure fucking suicide except with an acoustic guitar and (laughs) bruce springsteen yeah 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 almost the same (laughs) so after the release of the second album in 1980 suicide kind of went into hibernation mode for a while and it would be eight years before they recorded together again in the meantime though vega and rev released a whole shitload of solo records oh god so many (laughs) so many solo records While Martin Reb mostly stayed in experimental synthesizer town, Alan Vega leaned into rockabilly and scored a number one hit in France with Jukebox Baby. Cadillac and watch for the heat. Jubba baby, 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 
Fun. It's really fun. Yeah. Oh, he finally got to be the Elvis he always wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's straight fucking Elvis. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And he said that that hit like really saved his life. Like, yeah. To make sure like he'd have enough money to take care of his family and like in every in every way and, and make music for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's fucking great. You know, and that was just it's so weird that that was a number one hit in France. Yeah. <laughs> like only in France. Well, you know, you, you go, you go yeah. to France. <laughs> you go, you go where you go where the audience is. Now, compared to a lot of the artists who came out of the mid to late 70s, the 80s were actually pretty good to Martin Rev and Alan Vega. And in 1985, Vega met the woman he'd stay with for the rest of his life, Liz Lemary. So they both got all they got they all got uh coupled up. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> and she was uh she was actually very helpful because she was a musician, uh part-time musician and then she like worked in like, I think like Wall Street. She was a lawyer. Wow. So she kind of helped them out with contracts and kind of like managed them at some point. These are men who need they need People somebody like in her in their corner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They need a business person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then, starting in the late 80s, bands like Sig Sig Sputnik, who were bigger than you'd think. I know they sound like a joke, but they did okay. It's, it's, it's just so weird, the name. <laughs> SSS. <laughs> they started mentioning suicide in the press as often as they could, which is a good thing, because Sig Sig Sputnik was, for the most part, just a direct suicide ripoff. <laughs> Listen to this. Have you ever heard Sig Sig, Sig, no, Sig Sputnik? No. Let's check it out. During the jazzercise craze, right? <laughs> I believe it was. It's, uh, it sounds like the song that plays over the opening credits to like a 1984 summer movie. I know, and he's late for school. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it fucking sounds like. But yeah, it's it's suicide instrumentation with Alan. Yeah, it's 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 suicide. <laughs> but they were completely honest with it. They were like, yeah, you know, we sound like suicide. We dress like the New York Dolls. Go listen to those bands. They're fucking great. They were big in uh, the UK in like the mid to late 80s. But since these bands were getting Suicide's name in the press again, Marty Thau got a hold of Vega and Rev to do a third record. This one, called A Way of Life, featured a super Lynchian track called Surrender, which is surprisingly now one of Suicide's more popular songs. Oh, yeah. 
the owls are not what they seem. <laughs> How was that? That was a, that was pretty good. I liked that. Yeah, Thank that, you. that was you. pretty good. Yeah. No, that song should have been played at the Roadhouse. Yeah, like, <laughs> or in, in Twin Peaks: The Return. Like that. If if not for the you know unfortunate fact that one of the members is no longer with us, it probably would have been. But <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was uh what Way of Life. That was what like eighty eight. I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was eighty eight somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Can't remember. So many fucking albums, man. So many albums. So many fucking albums. But yeah, I think it was like eighty seven, uh, eighty eight. So it was, you know, a little bit. I mean, that could have influenced David Lynch's songwriting when it came to the songs in Twin Peaks. It might have. Very possible. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but it's it's got that Lynchian vibe to it. Oh though. yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 that gum you like is coming back in style. <laughs> It's funny because a lot of the critics, uh, a lot of the critics, uh, didn't really like the album so much. I, I think they called uh, "Suicide uh, uh, Has Beens," uh. and uh, Alan responded with, "That's impossible. We are never was." <laughs> All right, let me just correct you right there. They're great. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Such funny guys. Now, as the '90s began and the alternative bands started their heyday, Alan Vega and Martin Rev found themselves cited as major influences to some of the biggest bands of the day, like R.E.M., Aphex Twin, Ministry, and Nine Inch Nails. Good. I, I want to. You were saying like I want to listen to Nine Snails again. Yeah, I need to give them another pass. It's I, been a while. It, it's been a long time. Now th- that's what this. That's what this episode has kind of made me want to do. Like I want to go back and listen to fucking Ministry and KMFDM and fucking Nine Inch Nails and like all those fucking nineties industrial and bands. Come to daddy. Come to daddy. <laughs> come to daddy. But perhaps Suicide's biggest champion of the nineties and maybe their biggest champion ever was former Black Flag frontman. Henry Rollins, who is just starting to come into his own as a solo artist with Rollins Band. Well, in 1994, Rollins was offered a chance to contribute a song to the motion picture soundtrack for The Crow. Yes! I mean, that was a big one for me personally, that oh, soundtrack. Yes. I mean, huge. Fuck it, I mean, yeah, the Nine Inch Nails, The Cure, the Violent Femmes, all that shit. Like, for a lot of people our age, that was the first time we heard a ton of those bands. But what I didn't know back in 1994, when I was listening to this cassette over and fucking over again and over again, was that the song sung by the man that I knew as that liar guy was actually covering Ghost Rider.
interpretive. It's good. <laughs> it's very 1994. I actually found the scene where they play that song in The Crow. Oh, no shit. What scene is it? Because oh, I don't recognize it from the movie at all. It's when, uh, what's his name? Michael Alcott? Um, it, it, I forget his name. It's when the, the, the main villain. Oh, yeah. the villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, I feel like a worm on a big fucking hook. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then his, like, you know, his henchmen come in and, and they explain that Gideon's pawn shop was, uh, you know, burnt down. Yeah. And, and then the guy has that funny line. He goes, uh, one of my crew got themselves perished. <laughs> one of my crew got themselves perished. Was Somebody, it that guy? It was that guy. <laughs> Somebody stuck his blades at all his major organs in alphabetical order. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, that movie. I, I had to rewatch that scene a couple of times. <laughs> it's such a fun movie. It's Watch a really it. fun movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's super fun. It's goofy. It's fun. It's, it's got everything. But what this cover did was give Alan Vega and Martin Rev a relatively large influx of cash. I mean, like the first time Suicide ever made money because the Crow soundtrack was a fucking gigantic hit. Well, following the inclusion of the song, but not necessarily because of it, Suicide finally started getting the recognition that they deserved. As the 90s turned into the 2000s, Vega and Rev started getting booked at major festivals, their songs were being used in TV shows and movies, and damn near every show they played sold out. Finally! <laughs> finally! They're here! <laughs> they made it! 30 years later. It takes a while. It takes a while sometimes, yeah. Uh, but and these weren't just tiny little clubs or anything like that. Like this was like these like fucking Webster Hall shows. Like these were big fucking shows. But sadly, eight years into the decade, Mary, Marty's wife of over forty years, died suddenly on her birthday, throwing Martin Reb's life into a tumultuous period of trying to figure out how the fuck to live without a woman he'd been with since he was twenty. It's good. Yeah. It's difficult. It's really, really sad. I mean, they, they really since the moment they met, that they, they've been together. Yeah. This whole his entire adult life, like you said, like it, and she was so instrumental in so many ways about his life and his work, and it was just I can't even imagine. Yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> I know we have this conversation too often. We're gonna <laughs> one of us is gonna unless something awful happens, one of us is gonna have to figure out how to do it. We we figured it out. Murder, the murder-suicide no. pact that I don't, I didn't no, agree to. That was a joke. <laughs> was it? Naturally, though, Martin Rev dealt with it by writing and releasing even more music. Now, concerning the solo output of both Rev and Vega, like we said, we could spend an entire fucking episode just covering those albums. But let's just say if you're more into the electronic, delve into Rev. But one thing I will say that's worth checking out an Alan Vegas solo oeuvre is, is an album he did with Alex Chilton from Big Star in 1994 called Cubist Blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
very interesting album. Because yeah. it's totally improvised. Wow. Yeah, that was Alan Vega's one requirement. It was like, I don't want to rehearse. I don't want to write nothing. I'll just come in. That's why the opening track is eight and a half minutes long. Gotta <laughs> 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 find words. <laughs> quickly. Oh, by the way, by the by, that album, originally released by who else but Henry Rollins, also features Ben Vaughn, who later produced... 12 Golden Country Greats by Ween! Oh, yes, it was about time. <laughs> Is it something in my brain? I need whiskey to ease the pain. But it's early in the morning. And I'm feeling bad again. But if you ever love me, you'll go easy on me now. Fix me up a cup of coffee And in a while I'll come around I think I'll spend the dog food money But it'll love me just the same And if you really love me, baby Help me scrape the mucus off my brain That was quite a stretch to get to ween, but you know what? (laughs) I commend you on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was helped me scrape the mucus off my brain. <laughs> it's got the same melody as If We Make It Through December by Merle Haggard, by the Aww. way. Just a lot, just speed it up. God, I fucking love Ween. <laughs> I know. Eventually we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, like next year, like 2021. But, yeah, that'll be coming. <laughs> so anyway, even after Mary's death, Rev and Vega kept playing shows. They opened for the Stooges at the Hammersmith Ballroom in May of 2009. They played the Mimi Festival in Paris in 2014. And they played a sold-out gig at Webster Hall in 2015. The amazing thing about Suicide throughout these years is that they never rehearsed before a gig. They never did a sound check. And they rarely even talked about the show until they were about to go on stage. I hear that Regis used to do that before his show. (laughs) You fucking compared Suicide to Regis Philbin? Ween? <laughs> yes, yes I did. Save it for the show. You got to be in the mood. You got to be you got to be in there. Got to be in the moment. Yeah, that's right. But just I mean, I think that just speaks to how fucking well these guys worked with each other. That they could just kind of show up and be like, "Hey, how you doing?" It's like, "Ah, doing good." And then they just go <laughs> and they just walk on stage. But that's the thing. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. It sounds like it'd be absolutely awful. But from what I hear from people who were able to see some of those shows here in the city, seeing suicide as old men was a transcendent experience, which is not always the case with these old punkers. We've seen some old punk bands from the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and it's... It's fine. It's not always good. I mean, I, I've seen some bands that, that they sound perfect. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, dads. And that's, and that's fine. Like, that's, yeah. that's totally... It's like we were talking about on our uh, first episode. Like, when I saw the Sonics, they all looked like plumbers, but they were fucking fantastic. But, you know, another band that we saw last year, it was just, it was just too old. <laughs> like, they were... like, And I don't mean, like, they look too old. I mean, they were physically too old to play the songs. They just couldn't play them at the same tempo, couldn't play them with the same energy. It was fun to see. It was cool. Uh, it was, you know, one of the bands that I really love, uh, but... Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Well, just take our money. Just yeah, just Please. take it. Yeah, just take it. I just want to give you some money. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of old, Alan Vega had one last surprise for everyone. On what everyone assumed was his 60th birthday, Vega revealed 
that he was actually 70. <laughs> Revealed, <laughs> got caught. <laughs> Who knows? He'd been telling everybody since the days of CBGBs that he was 10 years younger than what he really was. Well, you said before he didn't want to be like the old guy. I think he didn't want to be the old guy, and he also didn't want to explain ever to everyone what he'd been doing for 10 years. Like, he didn't want to say, like, yeah, I've been working in a factory in Bensonhurst or Brooklyn Heights for the last 10 years. I just think he wanted to avoid the conversation. Eight years after that, though, Alan Vega died peacefully in his sleep at the age of 78. R.I.P. Alan Vega. Yes. As far as Martin Rev goes, he's not only still releasing albums, he's still playing live gigs. We were actually supposed to go see him play with Osmi Tantes about, what, two years ago? Something like that. A year and a half, two years ago. It was a fucking great show, but... Martin Rev, you went on early, and I had to work, so we missed him. I know, yeah. I know. I mean, Osmontantes was great, though. They were fucking awesome. And uh, was what was that guy's name? Y- y- Yonat? Gal Yonat? He was awesome, too. God, I think it's Yonat, I remember, and it started with a G. Uh, he was great. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as 2020 goes, Rev just played a show at Zebulon in L.A. on January 30th, and he just played a show here in Brooklyn on February 13th that... We had to work again. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe maybe next time. Maybe next time, because you know he's still playing. He's still out there. He's got to hang out. Uh, he's got to hang on just a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> please, 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 Marty. Please, Marty. Maybe on a Sunday. <laughs> but if you see Rev playing a show near you, go on out and support one of the living legends of modern music. And thank you all very much for indulging me and in talking about the band that made my favorite album ever. Yeah. Thank this you was, so much. This was such a great series. I, I really enjoyed because, you know, as I told you, like, I didn't grow up, like, listening to Suicide. I didn't either. I mean, I didn't hear Suicide until 2007, I think. Well, me was three years ago. <laughs> Maybe four years ago at this point. It took me a while. And, like, I never really appreciated them as much, even though I did enjoy, like, their albums. But I never really appreciated it until, like, I read their story. Yeah. Their story's so good. I mean, it's just, it's a story, like we said in the beginning, like suicide is the story of sacrifice. Like this is sacrificing everything, never compromising, and it worked out. It worked out. I mean, it doesn't work out for everybody. But it can work out. Yeah, and it's also the story, just remember, if you're gonna do something really fucked up and weird, be nice. (laughs) (laughs) It helps. It it helps. Be nice. (laughs) Make some friends. It helps a lot. Uh, Thank you all very much uh, for listening. Of course, uh, all of the songs that you heard on this episode are available on uh, my Spotify uh, profile. Just, you know, type Marcus Parks or type No Dogs in Space uh, and it'll come up. Uh, And also, if you guys out there, I know uh, we've gotten a great response on the show so far. We've got some musicians listening and we thought maybe it'd be cool if uh, we play some of the bands that are out there working and yeah. trying to make it, you know, trying to get some, trying to get some shit going. So if you have a band uh, that you know you think would be good for the show, it doesn't have to be punk. It could be fucking anything as long as it's good. Or uh, it could just be you. Or yeah, or it could just be you. I make music, just me. Yeah, it could be music. It could be noise. Uh, just what, whatever you put your passion into, uh, we might be able to play it. Yeah. At I, the end, uh, at the end of the show. Yeah, at the end of the show. Yeah, at the end of, of some of the shows here in the future so if you guys uh have something for us send it to no dogs in space at gmail.com we were lucky to get it yeah yeah we no got one it. else had it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Shocker. Shocker. But yeah, if it just send a, a link to like your Spotify or your Bandcamp or where whatever it is that you do. Or, or hell, if you only put out cassette releases or um, vinyl releases, mail it to the studio. You know, just go to lastpodcastnetwork.com and uh, look up our address. Actually, I just got the address right here. <laughs> P.O. Box 1870, Long Island City, New York. One 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 zero one. We really USA USA. We look forward to uh, to hearing your music, everyone. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new band. Oh, dream, baby, dream. Dream, baby, dream. Dream baby dream Come on and dream baby dream Come on and dream baby dream We gotta keep the light burning Come on we gotta keep the light burning Come on we gotta keep the light burning Come on, we gotta keep the light burning Come on and dream, baby, dream Gotta keep the fire burning Come on, gotta keep the fire burning Come on, we gotta keep the fire burning Come on and dream, baby, dream Come open up your heart Come on and open up your heart Come on and open up your heart Come on, dream on, dream, baby, dream Come on and open up your heart Come on and open up your heart Come on
The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.